Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. This is Vernon Oaks. It's a wonderful, wonderful Thursday. Uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are now our uh, president and vice president, and we're, we're so pleased to, to have them in. And they are facing five pandemics, uh, which, is, which is really, really hard uh, in the sense that they have the, pan- the coronavirus, they have systemic racism, the economy's down because of the coronavirus, uh, climate change, and I call it stupidity. And stupidity, in my view, is the worst of these because that's what keeps people from handling the, the other four. So now we have Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in that probably can br- bring some sanity in. And this morning, we're going to we're talking to Curtis Wynn who is the president and CEO of the Roanoke Electric Co-op and also the president of the National Rural Electric Cooperative. Good morning, Curtis. Good morning, Vernon. How are you? Hey, I am great. And how are you doing? I'm doing great. Glad to be with you this morning. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. And thank you for taking our time to be here. And National Rural Electric Cooperatives, how do you think that what National Rural Electric Co-op or cooperatives, electric cooperatives could do to help our country, help Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in fighting coronavirus and the economy and all of that? What kinds of things can you guys be doing? Well, you know, cooperatives are, are known for being trusted entities within the communities we serve. In most cases, when you see an electric cooperative and you, you look at that community, about everyone in the community knows who works there. They respect the leadership. Uh, the cooperative is, a, a, in many cases, an economic engine for communities. That is why we were actually formed way back in the 1930s uh, when rural populations, farms, ranches, did not have electricity. People joined together to create co-ops, electric co-ops, to bring economic vitality to those communities we serve. And so being a trusted entity within the community is, is, as you mentioned, one of the pandemics is around trust. So that's one thing that we bring with our cooperative principles of working within those communities. And I think another thing that has really shown itself as a part of the pandemic is the, re- the need for connectivity. As the rural co-ops were formed in the 30s uh, because of a need for electricity, many co-ops now are moving into providing broadband service. The co-op that I run in northeastern North Carolina, that is something we're actively involved with right now. And I can tell you that the the demand for it is phenomenal. It was pretty significant before the pandemic, but now there's a scream for getting getting this broadband out to places that it's never been before and now do it 
as quickly as you can. We're hearing that every day at our co-op, and I'm sure my colleagues across the country are, are feeling that same type of pressure. So the scream uh, for broadband that you all, you're getting in, in this rural communities, I'd imagine it's health care, it's education, it's perhaps ordering food. It's the whole sense of being able to be alive and communicate. And that's the, the same thing with having electricity in the 30s and 40s. These farmers and ranchers did not have electricity, and communicating, therefore, was very difficult or or I always think of Abe Lincoln reading at night with a candle. Now you have electricity and you can read. Well, Americans today don't know that, reading with a candle or waking up and you don't have electricity. So now you are looking at producing broadband. How is that going? Oh, it's, it's, it's going. It's a very big challenge. Uh, the, you know, the challenge for us, just speaking personally, is I've been an electric utility executive for 25, 30 years now. I don't know a lot about telecommunications, so the learning curve to get into a whole new line of business is pretty steep. And on top of that, it is quite expensive. So I'd say it's going well. Uh, we're utilizing consultants to help us get it done, but it's, it's new and it's somewhat risky. Uh, with electricity, there was a market that was there that you probably could rely on being there for well beyond the investment. That's not completely the case with telecommunications because it's very competitive. Uh, even though the incumbent providers are providing service in spotted areas within the region, but they're not going all the way to the the last mile, as you as we call it. So I'd say it's overall it's going well. We're making good progress, but it's not without its own set of challenges. But that's what cooperatives were built to do is is face challenges and support the communities in which we serve. Face challenges and support communities in which you serve. All right. I, that's one of the reasons I love co-ops. And, Curtis, I you got an undergraduate degree in business administration and management information systems. And when I saw that management information system, that's a natural for you to get into broadband then. I mean, that's just information systems, computers, technology, and you say you still have to learn a lot, even though you have that education. Right. Yeah, that's my background. Educationally, I'm, I, I do have a, a technological background. I think that's kind of scary for some of my team teammates back at Roanoke. They know I got a little bit of, of that that geek personality in me, and we, we do love technology at our co-op. We're very technologically advanced. But, you know, broadband is just it's just really – Specifics around it is, is pretty detailed. You're talking about using fiber optic networks and connecting folks, keeping up with all of that, and the you know knowing where every strand of that fiber is going, and managing the total aspects around it. In many cases, not only are we providing broadband, we're also getting into the telecom business, providing voice services as well as video services. So. It takes it to a whole new level of technology that we just are not as accustomed to. But it's really, really exciting, Vernon, to the people in rural areas to see this kind of technology come their way. It's taking us, I mean, it's really making a big difference for the communities, especially the younger people in those communities. So is it also creating economic opportunity for those young people? Can they start creating jobs in this broadband world as graphics or something? Yes, 
And that's a very good point. I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, what we're seeing, uh, going back to the pandemic once again, crowded spaces are not that preferable today. Uh, so what we're seeing is a, a somewhat of a window of opportunity to do two or three things. There's uh, corporations are, are more open now to teleworking, uh, allowing people to live in remote locations, but work, tap into their work by way of communications. And it's going to the point of even some folks are being allowed to move away from the New York cities or Washington, D.C.s to go to rural communities. Just the influx of additional people is an economic opportunity for us from one sense. And But for the folks who are there to be able to tap into jobs that were once not available to them that might be located in different places is another way to look at it in terms of opportunities. So, um, yes, we're seeing that. And the third element of that is we hope to see more businesses um, take advantage of the low cost of, of land and property and move those those network centers and other job opportunities, job producers to the rural communities. And, and as leaders of electric co-ops, we're watching that very closely and making sure we're we're ready to take advantage of that. So I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia, which is rural area, uh, uh, coal mining kind of area. Um, my grandfather worked in the mines. My father worked on the railroad, moving the coal out of the mines into the New York's and other larger cities. And so I could see this this sort of um, the broadband really, really helping these rural communities. Do you get into the schools at all as you're as Roanoke Electric or if, if you're looking at the other are the nine hundred cooperatives, rural electric co ops, is that the number? Yeah, roughly nine hundred. Uh some of those are co ops like the one I were on, which is a we call it a distribution cooperative. That's the co op that is electric cooperative that is closest to the customer. But in many cases, like with Roanoke, we don't generate or transmit power. So we rely on what we call generation and transmission co-ops to do that. And we we have a, a, a smaller number of those larger generation and transmission cooperatives that are part of the overall network. But the predominant number of those 900 are distribution electric co-ops that actually serve within those communities uh, where the, the customers and businesses are. And we call them members, and, of course. You already know that, don't you? Yes. So those customers, members, so there's 900 co how, how broad of an area do you all cover? Yeah, so we're located in 49 states, and we serve in probably 80% of the counties across the country, all of the rural counties. And uh, so by nature, electric co-optives serve rural communities. So we have a, a large percentage of the land mass covered. But contrary to that, on the other side of that is we, from a density perspective, because we are rural, we have a lower number of, of subscribers or members per mile of, of utility plant that we serve. So our line density, as we call it, is, is very low in comparison to other utilities. On average, about five to six customers or member owners per mile. Well, that's the reason there was a need for you guys. In the thirties and the forties, because those 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 electric companies that serve the 
New York, Chicago, D.C., the larger, they wouldn't uh, streamline to those last miles you were talking about earlier because it just wasn't financially uh, viable for them. They couldn't get their return on investment if they had to string all of this line to this farm that's way out in the boonies. So they didn't do it. So that's the the reason and the need that co-ops were developed in the first place. Is that, is that, do I have that right? You nailed it. That's exactly right. Co-ops then end up uh, supporting communities where a capitalistic business would not go into because they don't get the return. Okay. Right. Um, so you're, you're doing this futuristic stuff with broadband, and I really like that you've told us about the, the different economic engines that could happen where people in these rural communities could get a job in New York or Chicago or someplace, and they may live in North Carolina. And some of these businesses now may move because of broadband. They may move to lower-cost land and their whole business. And that way it creates economic opportunities for those people in rural areas like Bluefield, West Virginia, in a lot of rural areas, I left as soon as I could, and a lot of other people leave because there's no economy there. So this is creating a whole new world for rural elected. We'll be right back to talk to Curtis a little bit more about some of the things that they're doing in the future. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. Uh, WL makes a perfect, perfect partner for the last seven-plus years because their motto, as you just heard, is information is power, and the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program to give you information about the cooperative model. If you take this information and put some action to it, then that's where you get the power, either start a co-op or learn how you can do business with a co-op, and as Curtis Wynn has been talking to us so that we can help to solve community problems or take advantage of economic opportunities that may not have been there before the trusted rural electric co-op got in existence. Curtis, how did you end up in this world, this this rural electric world? I mean, we're... Were you at uh, five years old saying, hey, I want to be an administrator in a rural electric co-op? Or how did, how did you get involved? Five years old, I didn't even know what the cooperative was, uh, Vernon. I, I did, however, in northwest Florida, in the panhandle of Florida. Uh, that's where I grew up, on a farm. My dad was a farmer. And I have nine siblings. Uh, they didn't have... He, he never owned a combine, but he had the combined effort of all of his children to help run that farm operation. Uh, so that's where I grew up when I was a senior in high school. I was, you know, of course, as all seniors are looking for a job, I ended up getting a job at the local co-op, uh, washing trucks, cleaning the warehouse. When I graduated from high school, I went and asked the boss if, if he would give me a chance to work out in the the construction or right-of-way crew to become a line technician and he pushed back and said no i, I would, won't let you do that uh, he had another opportunity for me long story short i went into uh, dispatching which got me sort of got me working at night and 
doing some computer operations. That's how I got involved with computer information systems and information technology. Graduated from college, worked full-time, and went to college full-time. That was the stipulation from my boss that he was going to give me that job, that I had to go to college. And I did did that, got a degree, and, and um, worked at the co-op the entire time I went to school and got into professional roles, systems analyst, and several other positions there until 1997, uh, I raised my hand to take the job at Roanoke Electric, which is where I am now, and I've been there ever since, had opportunities to expand my role as a, as a CEO to get on boards, and eventually ended up on the NRECA board, which uh, you, you referenced earlier. I was voted by my peers in North Carolina to serve on the NRECA board, and those Peers on that board had enough confidence in me to elect me as an officer on NRECA's board and ultimately have had the last couple of years as the president of the National Trade Association. So that's kind of the history, how I got into it, got into it early at an early age, and it's been um, a quite rewarding career for me, all involved in electric cooperatives. Nowhere else have I actually ventured out to. Wow, that's a great story. I'm going to go all the way back to the farm in Florida. Now, was it your father that had nine children, or was it another farmer that had nine children? What was, who was it? It was my father that had nine children, <laughs> my mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And all of you all worked on the farm as a co-op, as people working together on the farm? Yeah. yeah, it, yeah we, we had to, yeah, we were, that was that was part of the deal. You, you had to do the work, so. Uh, we all worked on the farm. Yeah, I, I can remember as a small child working out with my brothers and sisters, my mom and grandmother and dad uh, out in the cotton fields and the peanut fields and all of that. Um, that was a part of my upbringing. How do you rate that upbringing as you've been out and you've seen a lot of other young folk? How do you, how do you rate that upbringing and getting somebody the values that a young person, work ethics, values, that, that, that helped them throughout the rest of their life? It did shape, uh, it shaped the work ethic in me. I've, I've learned how to work mostly with my hands at that age and how to get things done. My, my father was a, if he was a, uh, older, older day techie, he could fix and build about anything. And I really watched how he could use his skills to, to be creative. Um, in most cases, the farmers wouldn't do much. They wouldn't go very far without having him around to fix the mechanical issues that came up during peanut harvesting season when the peanut pickers would break down. He would be the one who could go in there and fix it. So I, I learned a lot about just hard work uh, through that, which I think, you know, for someone younger, the younger generation coming up, I would, my message to them and that I always give to my kids is that don't be afraid of work. It's going to come in handy one day as you get as you become older. Uh, so yeah, it was very influential in my, my early days of, of getting involved with work, and it's carried out throughout my career. So, how many children do you have? Nine? You have nine too? I have, I, I don't have nine. <laughs> <laughs> I have three. I have three. <laughs> so it's very unusual to see families that big these days. Yeah, we were from seven children, and, and yeah, it's, it's unusual. Uh, we, you needed them on the farm. That, that's sort of like the laborers on the farm. 
So they had bigger, bigger families back then on the farm. Yeah. So did your father encourage you to take this job in electric co-op? Did he like to see what you're doing? Did he encourage you to get this college education like that boss did in the electric co-op? He was, he was very happy for me, um, but not having, not having the exposure himself, um, neither of my parents went to college. So they didn't really have the exposure or the insight. Their encouragement for me was to just be productive and be able to take care of myself and for, for all of us. So unlike the way I'm promoting college and higher education to my children, I wasn't really in a position to get that type of encouragement from my parents at that time. Although the guidance they gave us was good, it was not on that level just because of the lack of exposure themselves to know how to drive us in that direction. So do you then say to your children, get a college education? You're pushing it. Your, your parents did not have that experience, but the experience they had was work, work. And your father, what I like about farmers, your father was able to show you the work ethic and he helped you to, to see the technology. So you got that technology too, but it was like, what I like about farmers, they had to do everything. They did not yes. have the money to go out and say, would you come in here and fix this tractor or this truck or would you fix this this plow or even when a when a cow or something got sick they had maybe they they had to be the vet too so they had to do it all okay so you in florida okay so do you know marie smith uh he has been on the show he grew up on a farm and he's in a credit union and he wrote a book called sowing seeds the lessons that his father gave him and I got that book, and I, I bought 17 of them and gave them to my nieces and nephews. It was, it was a great, my kind of book is the eight, by half an inch thick with big letters, not big words, not multi-syllabic words, so I could read it. And, and he has a similar background as you. Uh, he's been the chair of the National Rural Electric Cooperative, I mean, the National Credit Union Co-ops. Similar background in growing up on the farm and lessons learned on the farm and how you can apply them to every day. I do, you I know, do know Maurice. Actually, he and I have been collaborating here recently. He's a great guy, someone I really look up to. And I had been told for years that I needed to meet Mr. Maurice Smith. And it wasn't until about a few months ago that we connected and met. And um been collaborating and working with Maurice on some pretty interesting and exciting stuff around what I know is near and dear to his heart, which is diversity equity and inclusion, and we share that interest, and we have been really brainstorming uh, on how we can come up with a creative way to move the needle on that. Morris is very committed to a lot of things, but he's, he's certainly committed to how we can provide more opportunities to, to more people and, and become more diverse and more inclusive and equitable in, in everything we do. So we share a lot of traits, not only from our backgrounds, but as professionals in similar roles, uh, we, 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 we have a lot in common. Yes. And that's why I brought up his name. I'm, I'm hearing a lot in the comment in your background and then where you've come up with uh, two African-American males that are really moving in this cooperative industry. And um, we're going to have to go to our second break here in a little bit, but there are four different types of sectors of co-ops. 
So just I'll try to hit through those real quickly. It depends who, who owns and controls the business. If it's owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker cooperative. Therefore, any business could be a worker co-op. Any business could be a co-op. If it's owned and controlled by the people that uses the products or services, it's called a consumer co-op. So you're in this rural electric co-op. Those are the people that own that business or the people that have that meters that use that electricity. Uh, Maurice is in the credit union. That's the people that put their deposits and write checks. And these credit unions, they own the business. And those are the two largest co-ops in terms of members in the U.S. in this consumer world. Housing co-ops is the third one. That's where I got to know about co-ops. I was managing housing co-ops. The third group is called a purchasing co-op, and that's on the farms. Farmers would come together, and they would buy what they needed, whether it was a tractor or fertilizer or seeds. Then they, they would create a company that would get these skill sets. And the fourth one that farmers would use is called a marketing co-op, and that's where they would send their food to that they could get their uh, products to markets that they couldn't get to, or they would add additional value to those products. And so sometimes they're called producer co-ops. Those are the four types. And if you marry, get the credit unions to work with the rural electric, that's a lot of people that can get things done. We'll be right back to talk more about these two groups working together and the kinds of things that they're doing. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We're glad that you're back with us now. We're talking to Curtis Wynn, who's the CEO, President and CEO of the Roanoke uh, Electric Cooperative, and he's also the uh, President of the National Rural Electric Co-ops. Curtis, we have talked about the five pandemics. You've told us about some of the things that the rural electrics are doing uh, in broadband to help fight the coronavirus, to help with the economy, which is two of the five pandemics that we have uh, in front of us that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris has to face. And then you started talking before we took the break about you and Marie Smith working together on diversity, equity and inclusion which would overcome this systemic racism, which is one of the pandemics that we, we looked at with the murder of George Floyd, the lynching, if you will, of him. So that's also, when I talk, we talk about the principles of co-op, that looks at the sixth principle, cooperation among co-ops. And we talked about education, training, and information, which is the fifth principle, which is the first reason that I love this cooperators. So tell me some of the things that you guys, you and Maurice, are talking about in, in putting this diversity, education, and inclusion in, I guess, with credit unions and rural electrics? What are, what are you all talking about? So one of the presidency platforms um, that I established when I became president of NRECA, which is a two-year term, uh, back when that happened, I, I wanted to talk to my colleagues and really become a, an advocate for change. And when it started out, uh, it was more around the change, the technological changes that are coming at utilities in general, specifically electric cooperatives, and how we've got to adapt to the changes, become more technologically advanced. Uh, we've got to recognize that disruptors are out there making progress, building relationships with our, our member consumers through way of edge of the grid, as we call it, devices are getting inside of the home with smart devices that can disrupt the relationships we've had with our, our, our cons member consumers for years. So 
the message was, hey, we've got to be aware of these things. We've got to, we've got to make sure that we're ready to adapt and change the way we do business to make sure we don't lose our competitive advantage as co-ops. Well, midstream of my presidency, uh, as you re- re- referred to, the George Floyd incidents and all of the, the social um, inequities, and that became a, a big part of the, 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 the national conversation Right midway, it was just right in the middle of my term, actually, that a lot of this started happening. So as the leader of the association, as the president, I started talking about change and really the need to be more proactive in, in terms of acknowledging the need for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I drew the correlation between something we've talked about, how we got started. There was a lack of, of inclusiveness co-ops in the 1930s because we were left out of the equation in terms of having access to affordable, reliable electricity. So to draw that tide, I was basically saying we're in the midst of all this social unrest. We need to step up our conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we actually, the association is considering adopting a resolution to be more proactive in how we educate our cooperative leaders around the need and the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we're, we're moving in that direction, not only to produce a, a, a resolution that will be hopefully passed in a couple of months or actually at our annual meeting, but how do we put action steps behind it? And we're working on what those action steps needs to be, need to be. And Maurice is such a resource because, as you mentioned, he just stepped down recently from the, being the head of CUNA which is the National Trade Association for Credit Unions, and that was a part of his platform. So it became a natural – it just made sense for the two of us to sit down and try to figure out how do we come up with a very novel approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I can tell you – I can only tell you, Vernon, that we're very early in that process, so I can't give away – can't give you anything specific, but we know that it can't. To Maurice's credit, he knows it can't be another study that we put on the shelf and expect people to read and, and, and change as a result of reading some type of study. So what we're trying to do is come up with something that makes a lot of sense from an internal perspective of leaders within the cooperative space can really see it for the value that it brings to businesses. There are numerous examples of corporations, large corporations that show that those that have adopted DEI as a component of their management process are better at business than those who have, who have chosen not to do that. So with that as a basic premise, we're trying to figure out how, what, is the, the, what is a very creative and, and uh, novel way to, to really move the needle and get that more of a part of the culture of cooperatives, both in the space where he lives as well as the space where I'm I live in on the electric side. So coming out of uh, MBA program, um, I went to work for Cummings Engine Company. They make diesel engines. Uh, some of you farmers know about diesel engines. Um, and I worked for the president of Cummings. And at that time, affirmative action was what was big. And they were bringing in, in blacks. And they, they came out to Stanford where I got my MBA and brought me to Columbus, Indiana, another rural world. But he said, which was the first I heard this, it's good business to do affirmative action. It makes good business sense, particularly 
they are a na- international company, and they had a plant in India, a plant in Brazil, and to understand these different cultures that have different people working with inside Cummings that could go out and talk to these other people and understand it made all the business sense in the world. So not only was it the right thing to do, because there had been so much discrimination against certain people, particularly we're both African-Americans, so much discrimination from slavery all the way through to George Floyd and everybody else that gets killed by the police. And he said, uh, Jim Henderson, I take my hat out to him then and now, it just makes good sense. And that's what I'm hearing you saying about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It just makes good sense, and those companies are saying that. It makes good business sense to do that. So how's your response been with talking to the board members and the members of the rural electric cooperatives, those 900 rural electric cooperatives in 49 of the 50 states? How yes. have you it? it has been, um, at best, let's go to the very basic level of this. What I've worked very hard to do is, number one, is demystify the, the concept. Because all too often when we say, diversity, equity, and inclusion, our minds directly go to the, although it's important, it it goes directly and and exclusively to the social aspect of it. But it's such a broad topic that I think if if nothing else, the one thing we we have to accomplish is getting more people comfortable with just talking about it. And I have done that in in speeches that that I've delivered, uh, starting in the fall of last, uh, actually the fall of last year, up until now, uh, the association has been fully behind the effort. As a matter of fact, if you look at the NRACA national publication this month, the very front page and the cover story is around DEI. So my platform has shifted to be more focused around that. And I would say the reception has been very positive. Uh, there are folks who are coming to me asking how do we do it? And that's what we have to we have to be able to do. Part of the, as a matter of fact, part of the resolution is putting a framework together to show and help those who are interested figure out how to do it. I believe my theory is that as more as a few begin to grasp the value of it, it becomes uh, it becomes a somewhat contagious because we look at it from the overall value of how it makes us better as co-ops. And and it does include the social aspect of getting more people around the table, uh, having diverse thoughts, having diverse ideas, whether it's, it's ethnic diversity or age diversity, different backgrounds, whatever the case may be, having a broad range of ideas coming to the table to solve problems, which is what cooperatives do, which is what the principles we should do. I think we have a much better organization in general. I think that's right, too. And what, when you were just talking there, I, it took me again back to the principles. Uh, and, and you're talking about the first principle of volunteer and open membership. It doesn't make any difference about the political place, what your religion is, what your, your race is, uh, education, age, gender. It just doesn't make any difference. If a co-op is being run as a co-op, then everybody can can become a member. It just doesn't make any difference about these things. And so practicing that as diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, is what I'm hearing you really say, too, is how do you get into that? That's the first principle, but how do you really make it work in the, in the 
rural electric co-ops, but in any business is what, what you're talking about. And I think you and Maurice are two great minds to have those conversations. And I'd like to be a fly on the wall so I can learn from you guys <laughs> how you do this stuff. Uh, that's fascinating. So those are the the, uh, the things that you're doing with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, so far, what we've talked about out of those five pandemics, you've talked about what you're doing with coronavirus, the systemic racism, the kinds of things that's happening with the economy, that how putting in broadband can help people get jobs. They may live rural but work from a city or a, co- a business, or the business may move their business to rural because of broadband. It makes a whole lot of things happen. And then there is the climate issue. And I think as a farmer, you'd be very much interested in climate. Also, as rural electric, these tr- fires that are happening, uh, the, the trees uh, messing up the, the lines and all of that. What are you guys, what is the rural electric co-ops doing to overcome climate change? Right. So it, it, it ties all together. It's interesting, Bernard, how all this really comes together. We talked about being more technologically advanced and having connectivity around the the, the communities we serve as co-ops. But let, let me just kind of tie it all together. One of the deciding factors that allowed us, influenced us to go into broadband was the fact that it was going to allow us to run our cooperative more efficiently. What I mean by that is today there is more activity around what we call distributed energy resources. That means that the, the power is being generated near where it's being used, more so than it's being generated uh, elsewhere and transmitted to us. So in a nutshell, we're, we're getting the power closer to where it is, and it takes connectivity to do that. So that's just one area. And I can share more with you as, as you know, we further the conversation around how we're going to help the climate uh, really sustain itself and, and, and become less of a threat to the environment. And that has to be big on your, on your, on your agenda too, I would imagine. It is at the very top, becoming more efficient, getting people more interested in, in things like electric vehicles, but making sure that no one's left out of that equation. As we transform to a more technologically advanced uh, society, we don't want those low and moderate income citizens to be left out of that equation because, in many cases, the biggest contributor to the environmental impacts are folks who are in low and moderate income communities. They are impacted by this climate change the most. Is that and what you they're said? impacting, and they're also impacting, and I'm happy to share that with you as well. Well, when we come back from our last final break here, I would want to go into how low and moderate uh, folks impact the the climate change and are impacted by uh, the climate issues. But everybody out there, please don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. And we'll also get from Curtis his view of the future, what's happening in the future. We'll be right back. Information is power. This is Vernon Oaks bringing you information about cooperatives. That if you use this information, you can have a lot of power and control your destiny and the destiny of 
your family. So the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program. They've been our uh, sponsor for the seven years we've been on the air, and they've been a great, great partner with us. We're talking to Curtis Wynn, who is the CEO of the Roanoke Electric Cooperative in North Carolina, and he's also the president of the or the chair of the board of the National Rural Electric Co-op. We've been talking about the future, and we're going to spend more time talking about the future, but I just want to go back because he's from a family of nine, worked on a farm in Florida, started working a job in high school in the rural electric cooperative that serviced his area in Florida. He ended up with a boss. He wanted to go out and work on the lines. He wanted to be this laborer working on the lines. Growing up on the farm, he could do labor work. He knew how to work. But his boss changed his life. His boss said, no, I don't want you out in the line. I want you in here in this office and gave him an office job working at night and said, I'll give you this job, but you got to go to college. And he set him on a whole different track than where he was on. And I would like for you just to give a shout out to that mentor. I don't know if he's still with us alive, but who was that that changed your life, that changed direction of your future? Yes, his name is Charles Tybus. He was the first CEO I ever worked for uh, in a cooperative. Charles is uh, now, he moved out, he moved out of the electric cooperative space. He's an entrepreneur. He's very successful down in South Florida. Uh, just a bright gentleman that really he did. He changed my life and major influence uh, on me still to this day. Now, was he a black man or a white man? He's a white man. I just wanted to bring that. I kind of thought that might be the case. I didn't know. But it just doesn't make any difference because I've had a, whites and blacks that have influenced my life in all kinds of ways. So, yeah, that's right. great. I just I wanted to give a shout-out to him because from your story that you told us, he's the guy that put your feet on the path where you end up being the president of National Rural Electric Co-op, 900 co-ops, 900 business that, that, that stretch out in 49 states. 75% of the counties, 75%, a huge number of people that get their electricity from, so they, the kids can do their homework at night and people can turn electricity on at five or six o'clock in the morning when the farmers get up and they can milk the cows electrically as opposed to by hand. So there's a lot that electricity has done and you can help to influence that and he helped to influence you and sit your feet there. Just wanted to give a shout out to him because um, he just came high on my list of people to admire. As you are talking about the kinds of things that you can do in the future and what the rural electric uh, cooperatives can do with diversity, overcome coronavirus, how to change the economy, and we were talking about climate change before we took a break, and said we'd come back and talk about how low and moderate income folk are both impacted by this climate issue and how they impact climate issues. Can you speak on both of those? Yes. I'll go to the latter and talk about how low and moderate income families impact. Because it, it goes to the science of running an electric utility, and we, we, we call it the demand for power. Vernon, when you, when you flip your switch in your home or your office, you want the lights to come on. Especially early in the morning, late at night, you have a huge demand for electricity. And there are certain things that happen in different types of homes that would drive that demand to be higher. The higher that demand, the more power plants you got to build, the more smokestacks you got to, more stuff you got to put into the environment. 
low and moderate income families in my area, which is very has a high population of, of those, they're not using high efficiency rated heat pumps as you might have in your home. To stay warm this morning, they turned on a space heater. Or some might have even opened their oven just to get a little bit of heat through the home. And some might even have a, a, an oil burner in the back of their house that is pushing heat into the house. Those are not appliances that are good for the environment. And they're also very expensive. And they're costing a lot of money, not only to them, but the utility. So that is a way that they're impacting the utilities having to go purchase more power to serve this population because you have those inefficient appliances. Now, that's not good for the co-op, and that's not good for the, the individuals because in, in my area, on average, our utility bills of our customers are sometimes twice the national average because we wow. have those inefficient heat pumps and, and inefficient forms of staying comfortable in the home. So what we're doing as a, as a cooperative, we're using our balance sheet to try to help alleviate some of those problems. And that takes us into the future, into a future that involves everyone, including those low and moderate income individuals. I mentioned that those realities impact the cost of power that I have to purchase to provide power to all of my, my consumer member consumers. So we're making investment into those areas with, the, with partnerships through philanthropic organizations to help alleviate some of those high cost comfort makers, if you will. Okay. So as a utility, as a cooperative, we're, we're stepping over into that area to make sure that we're making investments on the other side of the meter that can alleviate those issues as well as lower the cost of power and the operating costs for our utility so that all of our, our member consumers can benefit from that. So they are impacted by climate change because it is a, it is, you see the hurricanes, you see the tornadoes. And when those things happen, it just uh, we've seen it ravish communities to the point that when we have these natural disasters that are caused by climate change, the rebounding ability of low and moderate income individuals is, is almost zero. So they, they really have a hard time hitting the restart button, as you and I might be able to do if we were hit by some type of natural disaster. So that's the both sides of that equation that we're seeing. So what I see yes. moving towards the future is this, is that the utilities have to, and, and this is something NRHCA has established, it's called Energy Access for All. And it's called, and it's, the concept around it is making sure that as the industry transitions to a more modern, uh, connected, distributed energy resource type of, of business, that we don't leave those low and moderate income individuals out of the equation because remember they're driving up costs. And if if 90% of the population changes to a more advanced way of purchasing energy and saving energy and becoming more efficient in their homes, that 10% that might be left behind is going to have a huge burden left on them. That's going to also still be a huge burden on the utility. So where the future is going is there's a convergence of technology with the energy sector in terms of how we operate, having broadband to connect devices that can help us lower the demand for electricity. 
There's this whole new phenomenon called that we're we're seeing called electric vehicles. And our ability as utilities to be able to work in the transportation sector to help level out the demand for electricity, i.e. charging those those electric vehicles in the middle of the night versus at five o'clock in the afternoon, which puts a big strain on the, the, the electrical grid. Looking at the total cost of those to run and operate those electric vehicles and figuring out how it's probably better for that school teacher to have an electric vehicle who's having a hard time keeping up, keeping her budget, his or her budget within manageable range, it might be more efficient for them to have an electric vehicle working in conjunction with their utility so that they can purchase very cheap electricity to charge that vehicle versus having to pay $3 per gallon for gas. So those are the kind of things that we're doing to solve the energy not just electricity, but the energy needs of our member consumers, especially those that are in low and moderate income status, we think there are some creative ways that the utility can become a part of helping them solve what we call pocketbook issues across the board. Well, we know the pocketbook issues. I don't know about you and your father with nine children, but with my my dad and mine with seven children, it was always uh, there's more month than money. You had to borrow from Peter to pay Paul. You had all of those kinds of issues that that us kids would hear about because that finances was the number one kind of problem that was in our household. So those are the pocketbook issues and how you can help people. So, Curtis, um, in this last minute or so, what message would you like to leave people? i got to tell you, I've just learned a lot on this this, the issue for, for poor folk, low and moderate income people on both sides of this climate issue issue, both sides of the meter, uh, the kinds of things that one has to do. So what would you like to leave people with? What message? I think the message I'll leave is that there, the future is, is, is bright. There, while there are challenges in our industry on all of the topics that you just, that you just talked us through, stepped us through in our in this conversation, there are just as many opportunities or more opportunities uh, if we r- remain true to our cooperative principles and do what those principles dictate that we do as electric cooperatives. We have so many opportunities to not only solve uh, the operational issues, but the societal issues around us that we stick with those principles. And I am personally committed to those. Sarah, I really appreciate this. I've learned a lot. Um, operational issues and societal issues, they seem to fit one in hand. It seems like you guys, you and Maurice and other folks in this cooperative world are addressing those issues. And I can see you and folks in this cooperative world being on panels that Biden and uh, Harris would put together to solve some of these issues. You've already been thinking about them long term. And I really appreciate your being on this conversation with me this morning for the people out there in the audience and uh, what I have learned. Uh, Any last minute before we call it a day? No, it's it's been a pleasure. As you say, you've learned. I've I've learned a lot just from having the conversation with you as well. So thank you for having me and, and I always look forward to the opportunity. Thank you very much. We'll try to get you on later. Everybody out there, we'll see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively.